And uh, let me open us in prayer and then we'll begin. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we get to come together, whether it is online, Lord, whether we are seeing what's recorded, whether we are um, here present, we thank you for the time that we spend in your word. Lord, this is a hard chapter, um, chapter and a quarter, with um, words of repentance, but also words of hope and deliverance and encouragement. May that be our word today. And Lord, as this is Ash Wednesday, and as we remember Jesus after his baptism, went on a 40-day journey in the desert, alone, praying, fasting. Let our hearts be turned towards you alone. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I do encourage you to um, come back tonight. There are a few services, and I'm, I think people would say I'm a happy camper, but there are a few services that I really like. Happy camper means I'm bippy, boppy, happy, bappy, you know, like last. But Ash Wednesday and Monday, Thursday speak to my heart more than any other services we do. And it's because it gives us permission to not race to the cross. And I grew up in a tradition where you had Christmas and then you had Easter and you might pause at Good Friday. But for the most part, it was just pretty much surrounded in, you know, we've got this victory, which we do, but you understand victory when you understand more fully the journey that gets us to the victory. So I encourage you, if you have time, if not, do it online. If you need the little ashes, ask me afterwards if you can't be here tonight, and we'll make sure that you get them so that you can watch it online and have um, the ashes. And the ashes, someone asked, are from the palm um, leaves that we use every year for Palm Sunday. So we decorated with them last year. We didn't have the kids bringing them forward. But Gustavo, our head custodian, um, burns them up and then creates the ashes that we use every year. And that's one of the traditions also. So there we go. Okay. All right, so this chapter, guys, is about um, Jesus talking both to his disciples. We know that the Pharisees are there because he mentions them later. We know in, chapter, in verse 1 that you all finished last week, and we are in Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 2, but I'm going to cheat and go back to verse 1, simply to say Pharisees are there, a huge crowd is there. there. It's almost like a mob that are surrounding Jesus. He also refers not just to the disciples talking to them, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the leaders. They're the church leaders. So, you know, that, that for me gets very convicting. And am I doing what I should be doing and being a shepherd for, um, for the congregation? And then also even talks about the Roman um, oppression. So he kind of covers it all in this chapter. There are um, a couple of parables. And parables are to help us understand what Jesus is trying to teach. And so um, as we look at that, we want to make sure that we understand this is a parable, this is a story, this is an analogy, this is, you know, and sometimes it almost seems um, that it's so extreme, it's like a hyperbole. It's like, no, you don't really cut off your arm, you don't really pluck out your eye. It's just saying, you know, understand the cost of what you're doing and why you're following Jesus. So um, that text is not in here, but that would be an example of how, how Jesus used the urgency of the time to get the people engaged in their spiritual walk. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. Let us begin. 
So meanwhile, when the crowd gathered by the thousands so that they trampled on one another, he began to speak first to his disciples. This is a sermon, and that's exactly what we're going to look at, one of the sermons. And if you read it, you'd be really happy. It may take you 10 minutes, but you're thinking, why don't we have 10-minute sermons on Sunday morning? So we'll work on that. Um, there you go. And he said the first thing, beware the yeast of the Pharisees. That is their hypocrisy. Now, the word uh, hypocrite or hypocrisy comes from the tradition of the actors, those who were in the theater at the time, and they were the hypocrites because they hid their true face. You didn't really see who they really were, and so they were hypocrites. They would say or do one thing, but they really were another. And so he's changing it and turning it into these are people that are deceiving you, that you think they're, you know, back then even females parts were probably played as males for the most part. And so you would say, oh, this person's in this role, but underneath them, they're really somebody entirely different. Very shy people actually do extremely well in theater because they get to pretend. So if you think of it that way, but he's yelling at them going, the Pharisees, that is their hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered and nothing secret that will not become known. I'm gonna go ahead and read just through this first parts. I know that you all have studied it, but it's helpful if we look at it again together. Therefore, verse 3, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered behind closed doors will be proclaimed from the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that can do nothing more. But I will warn you, I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him also. After he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, yet not one of them is forgotten in God's sight? But even the hairs of your head are counted. Do not be afraid. You are more value than many sparrows. By the way, if you've ever into our confessional book of confessions, we have um, the Heidelberg Confession, what is your only comfort in life? And it goes on to say, my only comfort in life is in Jesus Christ and the Father who counts, who knows every hair on my head. If you're wondering where these confessions come from, look back at scripture, because many of them come from scripture. So there's that great illustration. Verse eight, and I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before others, the son of man who will acknowledge before the angels of God, but whomever, whoever just denies me before others will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When they bring you before the synagogues, the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how you are to defend it yourselves or what you are to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at the very hour what you ought to say. Here's this, get ready, repent, but deliverance, just know, they're both, they're kind of both in. I, I love the fact, again, that we're looking at this today on the eve of Ash Wednesday evening. So it's, it talks a lot about repentance and what you're looking at and, and what you're believing in. And so we see in this the fearlessness in verse four through seven, it is a kingdom coming. Don't worry, fear not. There is a warning with that, but the God has the care and the mercy to take care of us. So grace and mercy are two themes that also go through this chapter. 
So then here's the question we all ask is, what is the unforgivable sin? And I ask that in your questions today. Um, you know, and how would you describe to somebody the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Now, some of you may be sitting here going, well, that's why we're here, Jan, so that you'll unwrap this. But let's just think about that for a moment. In your mind's eye, when you think of what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, what does that mean to you? Does that elicit uh, confidence or does that elicit fear? What is, um, what is God really talking about? What is Jesus talking about when he's saying um, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Now, you'll talk about it more, and I'm going to give you some cheaters here. So one is, is to think about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to refuse to hear or be moved by the word or works of God. Just, I just don't believe it. Or to see what God is doing and not believe it. So blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to absolutely um, deny God and, um, and deny Christ Jesus. And so blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to ignore, to discredit, to uh, refuse to hear or see what is either written or what is either happening. Uh, so that's a, a good word. And we think of um, the words that I have down here are, you know, repentance is impossible when we absolutely reject God or God's saving grace. And all things are possible, though, all things are possible through Christ Jesus. In college, it was a long time ago, but I just remember there was a person there who said, nobody can be responsible for my actions. So I don't believe in Jesus. I'm responsible for my own actions. And I was thinking, good luck with that one. <laughs> but that would be absolutely don't believe it. It's not going to happen. That would be a great, I just don't believe. Or somebody who goes, no, I think everything is really, really good. And I don't think you really need Jesus. I just think we look at him as a prophet. Well, that's not what scripture says. So then you, you come to that. But here's the other thing, especially for believers. And that's why it said, you know, you can have doubts about uh, what's going on in faith. I mean, I struggle, um, full disclosure, <laughs> I struggle often with just trying to comprehend what God is really doing. Now, so when I'm 26, we have a child with Down syndrome. I, I wrestled with God. What in the heck is going on? You know, you lose a son. What in the heck is going on? You have other difficulties. You ask that. That's not blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's not saying I don't believe. That's just saying, God, I believe, so help me understand. Do you see the difference there? But you'll have folks that will come every once in a while, and they are fearful. They're Christians. They go, well, I'm so afraid I'll, I'll blaspheme the Holy Spirit. I go, you know, if you're afraid of that, you're okay. <laughs> don't worry about it. Because that means you have a reality of God's presence in your life. So talk a little bit more about that when you get into your groups. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, it's used, it confuses, it, it uh, for some people makes them anxious. But do not be anxious. Uh, because Christ comes for us, dies for us, risen for us, advocates for us. And that's the last part of this. Help of the Holy Spirit. And we're always thinking, oh, what will I know how to say? How will I know how to say it? And Jesus, right here, and this is before he even gave the Holy Spirit. Um, as we hear about it later, I'm sending the advocate. But the Holy Spirit is a, for us as believers 
indwelling in us. So trust that the Holy Spirit will guide you when you have to defend your faith or when you're standing in a place that, um, that you're worried about. And he says right here, the Holy Spirit will teach you at the very hour what you ought to say. So are you ready to defend the gospel? Holy Spirit, help me. You have no, I mean, we probably spend as much time praying about what we're going to teach as studying what we're going to teach. We probably spend as much time, Holy Spirit of God, my thing is don't let me get in the way of what you want folks to learn. Holy Spirit of God, come. Holy Spirit of God, teach. And so Jesus has that promise for us. And I think oftentimes we, we kind of forget about the Holy Spirit um, or we just, Maybe we, you know, we're really good with God. You know, we get God the Father, and we get Jesus the Son, and then we get the Holy Spirit, and it's just not in our language, not in our, in our thoughts. But Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity, indwells us, advocates, is there for us, and Jesus has made this promise. Holy Spirit's going to tell you what to say. Just be good listeners. All right. Uh, let's go to verses uh 13, and I'll break them up just a little bit. So the first verse, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. And then he's going to go um, and say to him, friend, who set me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? But let's just stop for a second. The word tell my brother is a demand. He's demanding that Jesus do this. Because he sees in Jesus a person of authority, I'm sure, and thinking, so um, you do this. You're a person that can make my brother give me his inheritance. And Jesus said, who am I to judge? Why am I the arbitrator? Why did you call me? And the Greek word is very interesting. I have said this before, but I studied under, for a very, very short time, Ken Bailey. Ken Bailey spent over 40 years in the Middle East. He was a professor and a pastor. He knows Middle Eastern culture better than you and I ever will. And so as we go through the next few chapters, and this is um, spoiler alert, I suppose, I'm with you for the next three weeks. So um, I hope you can adjust, but I'm teaching the next three weeks. So we will look at some more parables. And the context in which they are told is really important to understand them. If you don't get the context, it's, it's not going to make sense to you or you will not get it to the depth that you can understand it. So Ken Bailey loves, um, uh, he loves um, Aramaic, Greek, Hebrew. He understands it all, and he makes this comment, and it's on your notes, and I think it's great. It's translated as arbitrator or divider. The word in Greek, um, merosites, is, is divider. If you drop the R and you move the I, the word becomes mesites which means reconciler. And so in this, Luke is kind of using a play on words because Jesus is saying, I am not the judge. I'm not the one who's come to judge. And he said this, friend, who sent me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed in one's life. Does not, in, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Okay, so then he kind of lays this out. He doesn't want to judge, but here's what he wants to tell them, and he begins to tell this parable. And um, he tells the parable of the rich fool, and this is verses 16 through 21. And the parable is, and I could just tell you about this, there's land, 
the land, very, very important, the land was plentiful. Okay, it's kind of like my sister just sent me this hat. I'm not sure I can ever uh, wear it because of the language on it. It seems like a privilege that I'm like, I didn't get to choose where I was raised. I was raised in Santa Barbara. So it's kind of an awkward hat. It's like, well, I was raised in Santa Barbara. There's a few words that go with that. And I'm like, like I got to pick that kind of thing. So the land is plentiful. This is not something this person did to make it plentiful. And that's very, very important in the parable. And he begins that way, okay? So it's a plentiful piece of property. He realized it's made this bumper crop. In fact, there's so much that he's decided he's going to store it up. Wow, I've just got all this stuff. And he said, I will do this. I will put down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. So there's a sense of abundance. And, and I don't want to get too far off track. Um, the, the preacher in Ecclesiastic talks about that. What more can we do but eat, drink, and be merry and enjoy all our days? Not at the cost of other people. And that's what this parable is going to get at. So you see this person, the land, the land was the land. It had nothing to do with it, but he did have a bumper crop. He collects all that bumper crop. He's going to build bigger barns. He's going to be set. He's going to sit back. He's not going to worry about it. And then God comes. <laughs> but God said to him, you fool. It's not really pastoral language, but anyway, he says, you fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich towards God. It's okay to have things. Being a hoarder, do you, any of you ever watch that program? It gives me heart failure, I just can't. I just, it just is like too, I mean, I'm bad, but it's just, it's, it's an addiction with people, it's all these other things. But I think we have a culture that also does a lot of hoarding. Like, what do I need to really give, or how much can I keep, or, or do I give before or after taxes, or, or, well, why don't they help themselves? Every once in a while I think we become Scrooge and are there not enough poor houses for these people? You know, <laughs> and we forget that. And this person was so happy with what they had, they just were building bigger barns and were going to neglect. And Jesus said, you know, you're going to store up things here and you cannot take it with you. How many stories have we heard about people wanting to be buried either with their jewelry or some woman with her Cadillac? Or you just, it just doesn't go with you. That's why, again, Ash Wednesday, ashes to ashes and dust to dust. Where are you going to invest in your life? And so if you look down at your paper for me now, um, if you go back later, you can look at Psalms 49. It's a literary background for this parable. The theme of goods is well known, again, in Ecclesiastics and in Job. Jesus is telling this parable puts the wealth of the individual in the context of gift from God and not earned wealth. And there's that point I wanted to give to you. The land brought forth plenty. So if we looked at everything that we have, 100% belongs to God, rather than 100% belongs to me and I'm going to share with you, God, it's really a, a reversal in the way in which we perceive what we have. But look down at the parable, it has five stanzas. Luke loves um, to use uh, literary phrases, 
poetry to, um, or to document what Jesus is doing. And Jesus is speaking this way. The culture of Hebrew is to talk this way because remember very few people read or knew so they learned to memorize and they had to get the story straight. Again, Ken Bailey, you tell the story correctly or you're in big trouble. We don't have that culture. We don't get it. We, we, there's a certain amount of uh, latitude when we, uh, in Old Testament, when you would, in New Testament, when you would tell a story, but boy, you had to keep pretty close to everything that's going on. You might say, okay, going, you know, if you're looking at a car accident, that's why you have four people seeing it differently. Um, but somebody might say, well, the car was going this way and over there, and I know because the tree was blooming, and so this is the time of year it is. Somebody may say that. That's not going to change the truth that there was a car accident. But if somebody says, oh, I don't think I saw an accident, whoa, 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 there was an accident. So you must keep the story together. I hope this makes sense. It's just in this culture, we don't have it. It has to be exact. And part of the way that they could do this is by the literary format. So that's what Jesus does. You have goods given, verse 16. This is from God. He's given him plenty, um, a land of plenty. There's a problem. It's so plentiful, he's like, well, what do I do with all of this? And then he has a plan. The present plan is I'm going to build a bunch of bigger barns. And then, um, and then in the future, I'm just going to eat, drink, and be merry and not worry about it, except uh, God intercedes in, in the same way and said, no, 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 you're done. And what you have will not be taken with you. And then the goods that are left are not what you have here, but what you have, um, the treasures towards God. And so how else might he have used all his bounty, so much of what he has? How much do we really need and how much are we able to give and present? So you see how the problem, it, it has a succession of what's going on. It helps us remember. God provided the land. There was a problem. He didn't, he had a, he had a present solution, not a great solution, obviously. Um, and for the future, he wasn't really thinking about the long-term future. And that's why earlier, when it's like, you know, they could take your life now, but the one who keeps your life eternally is the one for whom you should really focus your direction and focus your attention. And so here's another example of how do we go about trusting God with what we have and how do we give that away? What, how much do we really, really need? I love when we do mission things and we say, just clean out your house. And so many people have said, gee, I just didn't know that I really had all this stuff that I really wasn't using. I don't know how you do your clothes closet. I go through and if I haven't worn something in a year, unless it's like some special occasion, it's gone. So I'm like, somebody else can wear this. What am I waiting for this? I even do that with some of my sizes, like you're gonna to have to let that one go, Jan. <laughs> I don't think you're gonna be that size anytime soon. So there you go. All right. Um, it's also important to know that the person in this parable, it doesn't talk about his family, it doesn't talk about his friends, doesn't even talk, just he's a sole person, kind of a lonely, perhaps an isolated person. And I think oftentimes we're so busy collecting things that we neglect the things that are really important. Community, fellowship, 
uh, sharing with one another, those are things that are important. So the true poverty of this man is shown in his loneliness. And so it just, if you're listening to this, because again, the culture would be thinking, well, who's there with them? Are there, you know, as any story, people tell me a story and I want to know more. And so Jesus is putting this out there. What we see is that this person's pretty isolated. So what is it that you gain the whole world and lose your soul, right? All right. So worries and treasures. So let's go to 22 through 34. He said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food in the body, more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Oh, how much more value are you than the birds? You, and can you, and can any of you, by worrying at a single hour to your span of life? Okay, I'm just gonna stop there. Do any of you worry? Does it help? I've never seen worry help, except, except if I want to stay up all night. It's wonderful for that, but okay. I digress. If then you are not able to do so small a thing as that, why do you worry about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They, they neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? Hold that thought for a sec. And do not keep striving for what you are to eat and what you are to drink, and do not worry. For it is the nation of the world that strives after all those things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, strive for his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. And let me just stop there. This is kingdom theology throughout Luke, but specifically in these sermons when you look at it, it is the kingdom present and the kingdom coming. So I'm with you, Holy Spirit's going to guide you, I will provide for you, I will take care of you. That is God's kingdom present, but is it fulfilled yet? No, when Christ returns, our world gets a brand new creation to it. That we long for and anticipate. That is the kingdom of God coming, but this is the kingdom of God present. So Jesus talks a lot about those. And he's trying to get them to think not in a worldview, but the kingdom of God, which provides for those things that you need. The kingdom of God, which will um, take us into a relationship with him and with one another and will provide for us. So there's the first time he's used the kingdom here, but he goes on to say, do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. There you go. What is the kingdom? The one that provides for you. Sell your possessions and give alms. Make purses for yourselves and do not wear out, that do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no evil, no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So he kind of is emphasizing this again. And he's saying, we're always so worried about finances. So um, I'm not yet retired. One day I will retire. <laughs> And I will not make what I make when I'm working. And that's a little scary for me. I'm not a stock investor. I'm not all those things. And I can spend a lot of time really being worried. So I understand that. 
I understand if we're between jobs. Our daughter was between jobs for a short time and then took a job that she loves that pays less. And I've never seen anyone so excited about a job that's going to pay her less, except it was what she really wanted to do. So I think sometimes, let's not get confused with what is it that, we're, that we need or what is it that we have, but I think we do worry about those things. And God just, he, Jesus is saying, don't worry about it. You have a God who takes care of you. And he uses the beautiful example of the of birds and of, um, and how beautifully thing, you know, the lilies of the field are dressed. If you're a horticulturalist or if you um, are a bird watcher, somebody came up to me and said, I just think about those hummingbirds. They are like the happiest people on earth. They just go from flitting around all the time. I thought, yeah, it's exhausting, but they are beautiful. They are so beautiful. We have bird feeders. We love watching them. There is a sense of they're happy getting exactly what they need. And they need lots, they, have lot, they burn a gazillion calories, so they need food all the time. It's provided for them. People like us help because we like the little bird feeder, so they come and visit us, but they do okay. I'll take care of you. Do you trust that I'll take care of you? Where is your treasure? All right, so he, he asks this question. And the idea here is that as he's turning to them, he said to his disciples when he's talking to them, now the disciples, maybe Matthew, well certainly Matthew before he started following him as a tax collector, he probably did very well, thank you very much. But these are not wealthy people. These are people who in many ways, they're, they're financially maybe barely making it, might call them poor at the very least, we would call them you know, just a laborers. Um, they also are, are, are following Jesus and they're following a person who is both popular and as we'll watch, gets very, very unpopular and it goes back and forth. You know, Jesus comes back from the desert and what's the first thing that happens in uh, the Gospel of Luke is that uh, he gets kicked out of someplace. He has to leave before they um, overtake him and throw him off a cliff. So there's a sense of they are marginalized so that they're, they're poor financially. They're also um, have no influence. You know, they're not the Pharisees. They're not the Sadducees. They're not the Roman um, people that uh, have power. And yet, I'll take care of you. And so he's using this very directly because they can relate with that. Uh, people with a lot of money probably can't relate with this. Well, yeah, I've done very well. Thank you very much. I'm okay on this one. God, I don't really need your help here. And yet God is saying, but trust me in everything. And um, let me know that I will take care of you. And um, when we seek first the kingdom of God, there's a sense of peace. And I think that we've all seen that. So even in the struggles that I've gone through, there's a sense of peace that I am not alone. Uh, so when this cute little baby is born, when I'm 26 and we have all this news about them, there's a sense of peace that God is going to walk me through this. There's a sense of peace and loss that God is going to be with me, walk me through this. And it's as well with my soul. Why is that? Because I see the kingdom of God far greater than anything we face day to day. And Jesus is trying to tell him that and he's talking to them where they are right now, because they do worry about food. They do worry about how they will get by. But he's saying, I've got it covered, don't worry. Okay? 
Now, worries and treasures, he's just going to, we've elaborated on that, and then vigilance and watchfulness. Be ready for when God comes, both now and in the future. So we're gonna see that in these verses, um, 35 through 48 in particular. So let's just start with that. Be dressed for action and have your lamps lit. Be like those who are waiting for their master to return for the wedding banquet so that they may open the door for him as soon as he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master finds alert when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will fasten his belt and have them sit down to eat and he will come and serve them. If he comes during the middle of the night or near dawn and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. But know this, if the owner comes to the house, had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have, wait, yep, he would not have his house broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an unexpected hour. So basically he's saying, be ready. You don't know um, when, when God is going to show up, when Christ is coming, when Christ is coming back. Be always ready for that. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for everyone? Um, and I'm gonna, yeah, go through 48. When then is a faithful and prudent manager whom his master will put in charge of his slaves to give them their allowance of food at the proper time? Blessed is a slave whom his master will find at work when he arrives. Truly, I tell you, he will put that one in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, and if he begins to beat the other slaves, men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on the day when he's not expected him, and at the hour that he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. That's hyperbole there. That slave who knew what his master wanted but did not prepare himself or do what was wanted will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. From everyone to whom much has been given, much will be required, and from the one of whom much has been entrusted, even more will be demanded. So this is, again, a familiar familiar time that be ready for when God comes, both now and in the future. And it talks about the master who comes home from a banquet, and he finds his servants, his slaves, ready for him. They've anticipated, they have no idea when he's coming, and, um, but they're ready for him. If any, you all had, if you had children, and you went out, and you had a babysitter come, now my husband likes to go to bed early, so the babysitter was always really happy, but I remember babysitting, and they would come home at like one in the morning, or really, really late at night, and I was taught that you didn't have idle time, that you did the dishes if they were there, that you folded laundry if they were there. And that was only after the kids were put to bed and you'd clean them up and you just, you just didn't hang out. And, um, and I learned that 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 wasn't carried on to the next generation. <laughs> to come home to kind of an exploded home. The kids had a great time. Toys everywhere, dishes in the sink, all these kind of things. But you were ready. Now, oftentimes I would be asleep and they would say, don't worry about it, you can go to sleep because we know you'll hear the kids and you'd try so hard to stay awake until they got there. Fortunately, cars used to be a lot more noisy. Noisy, they were noisier than they are now, so I'd kind of wake up and be ready for them. But the house was in order. 
So the master comes home and he sees that things are in order. So now he becomes the servant. Do you see that? That he's not so great, oh great, glad you did a good job, going off to bed, this is nice. He goes, oh, sit down. Let me now take care of you, for you've been ready to take care of me. So there is the sharing of care for one another. And then this next piece, cannot help but think, um, does this have to do with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the leaders, the church folks that goes, well, we don't know when Jesus is coming back, so let's just, you know, not really worry about it, not preach the urgency, not really disciple people because, you know, it's been so long and who knows when they're coming back. And they just, they don't do a good job of taking care of those whom God has called them to take care of. Or they're not ready. They're not ready. And this whole piece about vigilance, be ready, we have waited a long time for Christ to return, but we haven't been alive for 2,000 years. So for whatever age you are that you came to know Jesus, that's the time you're waiting. But the church in general has waited. If, if you have studied history in the year close to 1,000 in the um, common era or after Christ, people built churches all over Europe, huge, gorgeous cathedrals because Jesus was coming back and they wanted the church ready for him. And so that's what they did. In the year 2000, do any of you remember? They're saying Jesus is coming. It's the year 2000 has been, because they looked at millennial. We're reformed folks, so we see that thousand years is God's time, not our time. Don't try and play with that. Just trust that, that the word of God, Christ is coming again. That will happen. We don't know when. But I remember going to church a few months before uh, 2000, billboard, Jesus is coming, they had the date, they had the time. It was like some pastor in San Diego. Did you all see this? I mean, it was like everywhere. And, um, and people were worried that all their computers would shut down. Some of us thought, thanks be to God. But you know, it was like there was an, a sense of, we know when this is happening. And the whole point is that we don't. So just be ready. And don't pretend like you've got a lot of time in terms of your relationship with God or your relationship with other people. Make the most of it now because that's what God does with you. God is present with you. God is there for you. Don't ignore that. So um, he tells it to them and then he goes on um, in, let me flip my page over, in um, Verses 49 through 53, and this is a little bit difficult. I came to bring fire to the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. That means to, uh, like a, um, an urgency, a fire, a wow, we've, the, the time is now. I have a baptism with which to be baptized, and what stress I am under until it is completed. Here he's referring to his call, start his baptism. He's headed towards the cross. He knows what he has to do. This is the baptism to which I have been baptized. This is the purpose to which I have been given. I, uh, do you think that I have come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For now on, five in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three, and they will be divided. Father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Well, that doesn't sound very good to me. I don't know. <laughs> what he's saying is that when Jesus comes and he speaks the truth, which he's doing, 
For some, that's not going to be good news because it means that God is coming and calling us to himself. And for some, they're not really ready to that. That baptism that Jesus is coming for, they really don't want to embrace it. There is a, um, a vexing for us when we know John 14, um, 27, my peace I give to you, not as the world's I give. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. Well, so what do we do with this? Talk about that when you get into your group. There you go. How's that for passing the buck? <laughs> but there is a sense of, there is an action that must be taken when we come to know Jesus or when we meet Jesus or when we see what God is doing. We have to be engaged in that. And it can cause division, yes. And he's using an analogy like it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean it's absolutely going to happen in every single household, but there will be a division. There will be, no, this is not it. This is not the Messiah. This is not the way we have to do. No, we just need to keep doing it the way that we've always done it. So he's just warning them. Be vigilant. Be ready. There are issues that are coming up, and you're going to want to um, see um, what is happening in my presence. And once again, I just think about all the times that Jesus um, wasn't received well. And when people say, everybody loved Jesus, then, you know, the next question is, why was he on the cross? Why did they try and stone him? Why did they run him out of town? So that um, the person of Jesus is both one who absolutely loves us, calls us, can discipline us, but is not popular or safe in the sense that everything's just going to be okay with um, doing things just the way I've always done them. And so there's this tension that comes in there. Um, and then he goes on in, just in the last part, the sign of the times. And again, you're going to see in these verses, he also said to the crowd, so see, he's been talking to his disciples, He's kind of inferred the Pharisees um, in this last section. Then he turns to the crowds. When you see a crowd rising in the west, you me immediately say, it's just going to rain, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but you do not know how to interpret the present signs. And why? do you not judge for yourself what is right? Thus, when you go with your accuser before a magistrate or on the way, make an effort to settle the case, or you may be dragged before the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer and throw, and the officer throw you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. So again, he's using this analogy that there's an urgency. How come you can see everything else going on and you know what's happening, but here I am in your presence and you don't see it? You don't see that kingdom present. You don't see that kingdom coming. And I know I'm running over just a little bit. I can run through the last nine verses quickly, if that's okay. It's okay. All right. Rick used to take off his watch and hold it up every once in a while if I really got carried away. <laughs> that's why we've been married so long. I know what to expect. There you go. All right. So he's, he's also saying to them, Judge for yourself. Why do you not judge for yourself what is right? And then he talks about before, you, before you're going to go before that person who judges you, ultimately, 
get yourself in order. Go where you need to go to put things right. Don't wait. There's an urgency again. The signs are here. Do what you're called to do. Okay, let's look at this last the repentance. Repent and perish. Uh, so there's first five verses um, at that very time there was some present who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And I'm just going to walk through this, okay? Um, it is a similar text to John 9 in, uh, in that the wall falls on the people. And he also refers to this here. They get slaughtered. Here the Romans. Remember I said you're going to look at the Pharisees, the disciples, the crowds. And here he's referring, they're referring to the Romans that came in and just slaughtered people. And is it their sin? What did they do wrong? How do we, you know, whose fault was that? And Jesus just goes, you know, he said in John um, 9, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Everybody needs to repent. So it's not their, who they are that they were being punished any more than we all need to repent. But horrible things will happen in our lives for which we have no control. We would like to. We would like to figure out. This terrible thing happened. If I could just figure out why it could happen or why it did happen, I can get rid of the pain or I could be in control. That's not going to happen. That's another worry thing that is, gives us no benefit to do that. And so this is what I think that people are trying to do. They're just thinking, okay, well, their sin's really, it's so big that that's why they were slaughtered by being in the temple and giving sacrifices. That's a, that's a sign of obedience to faith in the Jewish tradition, or the others who, um, who were killed in Salome. So, so just let me know so that I know what kind of sin to avoid so it doesn't happen to me. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 we all need to repent. Don't think that their sin is so great that if you just figure out what they did and don't do it, you'll be okay. Everybody, everybody has to come to the foot of the cross and repent. All right, this last section um, on the parable of the fig tree. Okay, I'm going to be good. And um, this is, I love this. I want you to look at your paper because there is a succession for how you understand this. And a man has a vineyard. He plants a fig tree. So it begins with a planting. He looks for fruit. There is no fruit. And um, the master speaks and he says to the vine dresser, the guy who takes care of it, um, I've waited three years. Now three years is a short time, but it should be enough time for fruit, you would think. And um, so I've been patient. I've waited, I've waited, I've waited. Nothing has happened. Cut it down. And the vine dresser steps in and he goes, well, let me do this. Let me just dig around. I'm not a farmer or an agriculturist, but dig around. Let me dig around this uh, fruit tree and let me um, put some manure on it. I do know this, that manure is never good in a pile by itself. It only works when you spread it around. Okay, so spread it around. Just give it one year. See, all this time has gone on. We're waiting. They should have been waiting for the Messiah. They should have been prepared. God has been calling people to himself since the beginning of time and waited and waited and waited and they've never responded. It, we're done. And the vine dresser, Jesus says, just give him a year. Let me just cultivate this. Let me see what we could do. And in that time, and if you look at this, the vine dresser speaks, give me one year to help the fruit bear. And he says it again, to help the fruit bear. 
We'll do it by digging around. We'll do it by the manure. And if it bears fruit in the future, if we find fruit, then that will be good. And if not, yeah, then we'll uproot it. So Jesus is saying, God has planted in your heart, but are you bearing fruit? Are you doing what you should do? And even though it's three years, we're ready. I'm ready to take this out because let's put something that will be fruitful there. Because that, as, as believers, we should be fruitful, both in our faith in God and our, and our care for other people. And so this parable is about calling us to let that vine dresser who has come to speak that, who has come to, to take, give us that kingdom present, that good news, to, to help us bear fruit and knowing what's there. And so he, that's that whole parable that I'm here for a while. Um, if it bears fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. Just give me a little more time to speak to the people, to call them to myself. And we'll stop there for today. And this parable is about both mercy and judgment. And if you look at the paragraph at the end, um, give it more time, that is a grace of God. And, um, and mercy, forgive it, just like, let's just do a little bit more time and see if we could do this. But there's also a sense that if it's not bearing fruit, you cut it down. If you have fruit tree, we have an avocado and it produces every other year. It took a long time for it to produce and now it produces every other year. If we didn't know that, by the end of this year of not producing after it's produced, we'd say, oh, this tree's dead because it kind of looks sickly because it needs to recover. We would have gotten rid of that avocado tree. It bears every other year and our neighbors are very impatient with the down year because we bring them sacks of avocados. <laughs> But hang on, it's going to bear fruit. And I pray that that's what we do, bear fruit. Questions? I know you guys have your group. Let me pray you out of here. Lord, thank you that these folks have been so patient, that they've uh, sat and listened. Lord, I pray as they go into their groups that they will wrestle with uh, some of the questions here, wrestle with this passage. Um, a, a loving God who definitely calls us to himself and also calls us to the reality that um, there is both mercy and judgment. May you be merciful in our lives at all times, in Christ's name, amen. Thank you, ladies.